Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. The French History Podcast is brought to you by Evergreen Podcasts. History, pop culture, news, whatever it is you're looking for, Evergreen has the best of it. Today's episode is by Michelle Chunhan Su. Michelle is a doctoral student in French from the University of Oxford, where she is currently working on a thesis titled Gender and Empire in Turn-of-the-Century French Literature on China. Her project thinks of China as both a declining, but potentially rival, empire and a museum of beauty, cruelty, and ancient practices which occupied a unique and contradictory place in the imagination of Fond de Siècle, France. Prior to her doctoral studies, she completed a master's degree at the École Normale Supérieure in Paris, an MST in Modern Languages at Oxford, and a BA in Foreign Languages and Literatures at National Taiwan University. In today's special episode, Michelle uses a famous play to showcase how French people during the Belle Epoque envisioned the Far East. From April to August 2023, the Petit Palais devoted an outstanding exhibition to the divine Sarah Bernard, actress, artist, and the star who served as the model for the character Berma in Martha Proust's A la recherche de Dombertus. Sarah Bernard is an eminent figure in the French theatre of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The exhibition evokes some of her signature roles throughout the costumes she wore on stage, photographs, paintings, posters, and other memorabilia. Among the roles are Cleopatra, Phaedra, Joanne of Arc, and Hamlet. These figures are all prominent in the Western canon. However, there is one character that Sarah Bernard would have interpreted for a play she commissioned, but abandoned when the draft was only at half-cock. This character is the protagonist for today's talk. She was conceived for Berna's performance, but did not make it to the repertoire of her plays. She is La Fille du Ciel, the Daughter of Heaven, the eponymous heroine of a play written by Judith Gauthier and Pierre Lotti, published in 1911. My name is Michelle Xu. I'm a second-year DFU student in French at the University of Oxford. I'm interested in the French representation of China from the late 19th century to the early 20th century, especially as it involves gender identity and cross-cultural exchange. For me, this is not just about ferreting out forgotten fun stories situated in the interstices of overlapping networks of meaning and culture. I'm also fascinated by what literature as a cultural product can tell us about the social, cultural and political context in which it was created, read and transformed. 
Today's talk presents a case in which issues of Chinese politics are dramatized by contemporary French authors known for their exotic writing. I will discuss how La Fille du Ciel blends French fantasies about China and politics of late Qing dynasty with regard to the Chinese Empire's attempt at modernization and self-reinvention. As a piece of melodrama, La Fille du Ciel makes a rift between imaginary narrative and political debate in the real world narrower than it seems. In the late 1990s, China was in political upheaval. It was grappling with ways of modernization to strengthen itself in the face of imperialist advancements. The broad political questions that were being asked appear as background in La Fille du Ciel, a play co-authored by Pierre Loti and Judy Gauthier. Loti was a naval officer known for his novels set in the Middle East, Japan and Polynesia. Gauthier was the daughter of a writer called Delphi Gauthier, translator and novelist. She was an oriental scholar. Many of her works dealt with Chinese and Japanese themes. Gauthier never set foot in China despite her interest in Chinese learning. Loti knew little about the Chinese language and its culture despite the fact that he stayed in Beijing as a military envoy after the Boxer Uprising in 1900. Based on these credentials, they seem to be an unreliable duel to tell stories about China. However, my argument is that La Fille du Ciel is not simply an Orientalist product. By Orientalist, I mean Eurocentrically produced images about the Middle East and the Far East that alter the reality of these worlds by generating fantasies based on Europe's attitude towards these regions. I would like to show that La Fille du Ciel celebrates a political thinking of a Chinese statesman called Kang Youwei, a reformer in the late Qing period whom Gautier admires and represents as the emperor's right-hand man in the play. The romantic encounter between the Manchu Emperor and the Han Empress extols the cultural nationalism upheld by Kang, but this egalitarian vision of China as a modern nation-state is overshadowed by melodrama. In other words, La Fille du Ciel draws on issues of Chinese politics, but its exaggeration of emotional appeal as one of the features of melodrama and stage production make it pretty hard to get the whole idea for the audience. La Fille du Ciel is set in an imaginary period in which China is divided between Qing and a Han regime occupying Nanjing, a situation reminiscent of the Taiping Rebellion from 1851 to 1864. The protagonist is the Manchu Emperor Guangxu, whose right hand is named Puy des Bois, a rendering of the real-life minister Kang, who launched a series of reforms in 1898. It was blocked by other factions of the court, headed by the Empress Dowager Cixi. In the play, the Emperor visits the rebel capital Nanjing in disguise as a regional lord, in the company of Puy des Bois, to pay tribute to the Han Empress, La Fille du Ciel. He falls in love with her, but his identity is soon to be revealed as the Qing army is about to seize Nanjing. A captive brought to Beijing, the Empress refuses the Empress proposal of marriage, presented as a reform for the Empire's benefit. Though she loves the Emperor, as long as he keeps his Chinese disguise, she would rather take poison to kill herself. 
The emperor becomes a heartbroken man. He kneels in front of the empress's body and bids the crowd to prostrate themselves. In spring 1903, Sarah Bernard asked Loti to write her a Chinese piece. Loti obtained Gautier's agreement to collaborate with him and Bernard was initially happy with the agreement. The actress specified that there should be an empress and characterized the role as gallant, glorious and sanguine. La Fille du Ciel was thus conceived as a piece tailored to Bernard's performance. In their correspondence, Pierlotti indicated to Judy Gautier that ce sera bien enfantin, bien mélo, mais elle le veut. This will be pretty childish, pretty melodramatic, but she wants it. The play's progress was bogged down by Lottie's itinerant life. As a naval officer, Lottie was constantly on the move. He travelled around Paris, Rochefort and Istanbul. What's worse, the play's development was full of the author's wrangling. Dissatisfied with the draft shown to her in May 1904, Bernard declined to star in the play and ironically accepted a play by Judy Gautier's ex-husband, Catherine Mondes, in 1906. La Fille du Ciel was left hanging for several years. It was first published serially in the Revue des Deux Mondes in 1911, then premiered in Century Theatre New York in October 1912. At first glance, the romance between La Fille du Ciel and the Manchu Emperor might appear to be a piece of sentimental naivete. Gautier indicates, however, that Kang's advice represents une réconciliation pacifique et sincère entre les deux races ennemies, a pacifist and true-hearted reconciliation between two warring races. This refers to Kang's conception of China as a modern nation-state based on equality among different ethnic, religious groups during the Hundred Days Reform, in the play, the minister Pridebois accompanies the emperor to visit Nanjing incognito and provides him with confidential assistance. In doing so, Gautier celebrates counsel offered by Kang in reality. Having identified the play's pacifist position regarding the Manchu hand tension in China, Michael Lerner is right in surmising that the analysis of the real issues at stake and fuller characterization have been subordinated to the interests of sensational theatrical representation, whether spectacular, emotional or horrific, end quote. But dismissing the play as shallow melodrama overlooks the very way in which the play interprets the political argument at stake, that is, representing ethnic reconciliation and national unification in amorous terms. The purpose of my research is to understand melodrama and political discourse in cooperative terms. In light of this, melodrama does not function as sheer sentimentalism and lines of argumentation are not the only means of approaching political issues. Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor provides fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Factor includes a variety of plans, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto, among others. Factor is perfect for a busy routine, with high-quality, healthy food that fits into your daily schedule. Mouth-watering dishes like chicken and mushroom tetrazzini, 
cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu, and artichoke and spinach chicken are all on this week's menu, and you don't want to miss out on those. In addition to savory meals, Factor offers snacks and wellness shots, the latter of which has become a personal favorite of mine. Go to factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code frenchhistory50 to get 50% off Factor Meals. That again is factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code frenchhistory50. Sign up today. Your stomach will thank you. The 100 Days Reform was an initiative to modernize China's education system economic, political system, and army. Some of the goals had been put in place while some had not. Among those that remained unrealized were constitutional monarchism and ethnic equality between the Manchu in power, Han, Mongols, Tibetans, Muslims, and other peoples. This was a period in which intellectuals started to conceive China as a nation instead of the position of imperial dynasties, they realized that the Chinese nation did not really have a name and a defined body of members except the names of dynasties. The absence of a nation points at the fact that China has long been the private possession of ruling families instead of a country and a national concept. Therefore, to reform China is to reach a new conception of what China consists of as a modern nation-state. This is not just about finding a name to baptize the nation, but a renewal of historiography and discursive strategies for the self-representation of an imagined community, whose identity, as Benedict Anderson argues in his seminal Imagined Communities, is, I quote, to be distinguished not by their falsity genuineness, but by the style in which they're imagined, end quote. Among the eminent thinkers in China's nationalistic debate were Kang Youwei and Zhang Taiyin, who respectively put forward a proposal to name the country and define the Chinese nation. For Kang, both Manchu and Han are natural members of China, thanks to the acculturation of Confucianism, so there is no need to maintain the distinction within the concept of Chinese nationhood. He suggested that, Ethnic categories should be eliminated so that China can unify as one and eradicate suspicion and rancor for good, and become strong together and empower China. In contrast, Zhang believes that the Han nation is the only legitimate subject of China, and the boundaries of the Republic of China should be delineated along lines of ethnicity. Kang supports constitutional monarchism, while Chang advocates revolution fueled by anti-Manchu sentiments. Kang's position is identified by a researcher called Sen Zongxiao as cultural nationalism, which uses cultural identity as a source of nationalistic alignment, and Zhang's version of Chinese nationhood is regarded as a form of racial nationalism, which draws on a racial distinction as a source of identity. In La Fille du Ciel, cultural nationalism is articulated through melodrama, given the play's combination of love story and political allusions to piggyback on political convulsions ranging from the Taiping uprising to revolutionary movements 
that came to overthrow the Qing dynasty in 1911. Apparently, the mix and match of historical events that hardly has any sense of historical accuracy. It maximizes the sense of political turbulence as a backdrop for an impossible love story. In fact, Gautier's access to the social network of sinologists and Chinese coterie in Paris played a significant role. She befriended one of the Chinese ambassadors in Paris and was among the guests of some of the events held by the Chinese embassy. This offered a source of inspiration for her writing based on real-world politics instead of pure fantasy. Thus, it is important to see how melodrama infiltrates ethnic reconciliation in the play and how Gautier interprets Kang's ideas in her writing on Chinese politics. The play has been criticized because of its excess in gallantry. At one point, the emperor in disguise as a lord declares that he would rather be the Tartar emperor so that he could consign the whole realm to the Fiduciel. He also suggests that their union will engender a new China which will gain vitality and dominate the world. So, the consummation of his love will bring about a revitalized national identity. Another dimension of melodrama involves patriotic zeal. Despite her feelings for the emperor, the empress harbors an ineradicable hatred against the Manchu. As the Manchu army storms the palace in Nanjing, the empress is cast as an indestructible warrior who abolishes the act of prostration and commits her life to defending the Han nation. Before killing herself, the Empress's share of the play's romance lies in her acknowledgement of their feelings for each other. She compares their relationship to two stars separated by a great abyss. Regardless of the abyss, their love is like the starlight that shines through it. Her passion, courage, and suicide tick all the boxes for galant, glorious, and sanguinaire. More importantly, the Empress is portrayed in the same way as the fille fetish, fetish girls of the boxes in Lotis Chinese travel notes titled Les Derniers Jours de Pékin, The Last Days of Beijing, and women revolutionaries in Lam Chinoise, Chinese Soul, a political commentary written by Gautier in 1919. Both Lotis and Gautier compare these figures to Joanne of Arc and the Fiduciel is characterized in the same terms. When the Manchu emperor meets the empress as a prisoner in Beijing, he alludes to her valour in the battlefield. Dites que vous avez des héroïnes sublimes, la grande impératrice guerrière, la déesse des combats qui défiait les flèches et les mitrailles, celle qui revira éternellement dans les poèmes et l'histoire. Say that you have a sublime heroine the great warrior empress, the goddess of combat, who defied arrows and grapeshot, the one who will live forever in poems and history. In Act 4, Scene 1, commoners at an execution site of Beijing also recall that les balles, les mitrailles, tout cela passait au travers d'elle, comme au travers du nombre. This echoes the image of Joanne of Arc, used by Loti to describe the fee fetish of the boxes 
In les derniers jours de Pékin, Mpaye Gauthier to describe women revolutionary in 1911 in Lamchinoise. In les deux déesses des boxeurs, two goddess of boxers, Lottie recalls his visit to a hall where two women shamans are detained. Seated in a room strewn with leurs atours de guerrières et de déesses, they collapse into a state of consternation and are described as follows. Is it des espèces de gens d'arc? Is it des filles fétiches que l'on posait dans les pagodes si clipées d'obus pour en protéger les hôtels, des inspirés qui marchaient au feu avec des cris pour entraîner des soldats? Is it les déesses et de ces incompréhensibles borseurs à la fois atroces et admirables, grands hystériques de la patrie chinoise? They were a kind of Joan of Arc. They were fetish girls who were placed in pagodas riddled with shells to protect their altars, inspired women who walked through fire with cries to train the soldiers. They were the goddesses of those incomprehensible boxers, both atrocious and admirable, great hysterics of the Chinese fatherland. It was believed that the martial arts and magic practiced by the boxers could protect the human body from weapons of all sorts, including European guns. Depicting the Empress as imperishable in the hail of bullets makes a clear reference to this. Lam Xin was a political commentary about the Hundred Days Reform and the 1911 Revolution. In this article, Gautier writes that Chinese women want to sacrifice their life for the Republic and she compares them to the Jeanne d'Arc sans mysticisme, qui ont plusieurs fois sauvé des villes et des provinces. Just as the Pied du Ciel sacrifices herself for the nation, women revolutionaries die for the Republic, and the detained shamans are ready to receive divine uh, inspiration, overcoming the fear of death. Are they not all, in a way, daughters of heaven whose images are mapped onto Joanne of Arc by French writers to make sense of Chinese xenophobia and patriotism? Some broader implications of this use of a figure from France's own nation-building narrative can be teased out, gesturing towards a transcultural and strategic rapprochement to make it easier to sympathize with the fille du ciel. It is important to note that Joanne of Arc is one of Sarah Bernard's iconic roles. Associating the fille du ciel with the French national heroine seems to be a nice way of aligning the Chinese monarch with the actress's signature appearance. So, it is interesting to see how La Fille du Ciel acts as a go-between negotiating melodrama, political thinking, and cultural perception between France and China. It is a work that deals with indigenous politics in a synthetic and sympathetic way, by envisioning a new and egalitarian China set out in amorous terms it blends Chinese reformist thinking and French melodrama, incorporating allusions to Kang Youwei's ideas for reform to balance the love story with the nation-building blueprint. Thank you very much. As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation 
or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.